that I called authentic Christianity. And I expressed my concern that the church at times is really languishing and is suffering spiritually malnourished. And I gave you a variety of reasons. And since it's been a bit of time, I want to circle back to that. There are numbers of reasons that the church languishes. There are worldly shepherds. That's the first reason. Worldly shepherds. I, I don't just mean pastors who wear torn jeans or smoke a pipe after church or whatever. Maybe trying to influence people with how slick and youthful they are. I mean elders who are incapable of using the Bible to guide church members and to guide the church as a whole. Elders who think that the church eldership is somehow similar in any way whatsoever to a corporate board of directors. It's not. Pastors who embarrass themselves and their church out in the community by their behavior. Pastors whose homes aren't really distinct from the world at all. Shepherds who mistakenly believe that their own winsomeness, their own charm is the factor that will change lives instead of trusting the surgical work of the Word of God. Worldly shepherds is one reason the church languishes. Another reason we call generations of sentimentality. Generations of sentimentality. One of the greatest uphill battles that the church faces is to convince believers that worship is actually about God, not about them. Many of you coming into Grace Bible Church have had to experience a transformation in your understanding that a worship gathering is not to induce emotion. It is not to give you an experience. It is not to serve you. It is not to even deal with your felt needs. A worship gathering is commanded by God to offer to Him all the honor and the praise and express to Him the truths about Himself that are due to Him. Now that might induce emotion. But I would remind all of us of Job that when everything that was precious to him was ripped out of his life, all of his children dead, all of his possessions taken away, his response was to worship. There was no emotion except agony for him. There's another reason the church languishes at times. An embarrassment at the biblical gospel that the church at times is embarrassed by the biblical gospel. The true biblical gospel does not allow for a person to make a, a quick profession of faith, to live his life in the church without ever actually being regenerate. The true biblical gospel does not include a sinner's prayer because there is not one of those in the Bible. The true biblical gospel is regeneration brought by the Holy Spirit and brought about by the repentance of a truly destitute soul that is desperate to have his or her sins forgiven. This is why Jesus warns in Matthew 7 of the religious frauds that will be judged. Those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not? These are church members. This is why Jesus explains that the tares will grow up with the wheat, that the church will have unbelievers infiltrating the ranks. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It'll always be the ones you least expect, but I've known him forever. I'm personally close to him. Therefore, he must be a Christian. What kind of arrogance is that? Many churches and, and pastors, it's just sickening, have attempted to soften the blow of the gospel by making salvation somehow about finding God's purposes for your life or have enough faith to discover God's plan. 
Here's God's plan. It is to send you to hell unless you repent of your sin. And you say, well, that's not very nice. You know what's even less nice is to not tell you that plan. The embarrassment of the biblical gospel. How dare we? One more I listed as a reason the church languishes. Just call this the congregation as customer. The congregation as customer. This is manifested with light preaching which offends no one. Of taking polls, of checking the prevailing winds and wondering what would make people happy. Trying to be as convenient as possible with short worship services offered at 57 different times to fit God into your very important busy schedule. The New Testament doesn't prescribe a Lord's minute or Lord's hour. It prescribes a Lord's day. I could list many cancerous drains which cause the church to languish in spiritual weakness. Instead, what are we to do? We're to build a culture of holiness. We're to build a culture of love for the word, of humble, awestruck worship, a culture of a pursuit of God above and beyond any other pursuit. I'm burdened by this. I'm burdened to speak on authentic Christianity because Jesus teaching on the tares growing up with the wheat, Jesus teaching that there will be church members in eternity saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. It, it weighs me down. It weighs me down. And my prayer is that someday when Grace Bible Church, as it were, is standing before the Lord, I want to look around and see all of you and not have that shock of where's so-and-so. And so basically what we've been doing over these messages is just giving some heart tests. The things that we do that demonstrate the authenticity of faith. And in our final installment here of this mini-series, I want to deal with the fact that the authentic Christian gives with humility. From our text here in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, the authentic Christian gives with humility. And historically in the church, the idea of preaching on giving seems to be a stumbling block, and I really don't understand that. I've never shied away from it. I'm frankly baffled by the thought of shying away from it any more than I would shy away from preaching on every other area of Christian living. And it's an important topic because it tests your heart. The Bible has much to say on the subject of giving and here in particular, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He doesn't deal with amounts. He doesn't deal with percentages. He deals with the innermost heart's yearning of the true believer in Christ. And I can tell you from experience, I've been a pastor long enough to see that in the church, Matthew 6.21 is consistently time and time again true when Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, our primary text this morning, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus uses the example of giving to the poor. But this isn't really a passage about giving to the poor. This is a passage about testing the heart. And it's a very reasonable bridge that we can take from giving to the poor to giving to the gospel ministry. It's a reasonable bridge because of some strong lines of evidence. First of all, with the inception of the church in Acts chapter 2, giving to the poor began to be funneled through the church and there became more of a, a focus on the church and less on a nation. That is the case with us as well. We funnel benevolent giving through the church and it's something that's an important ministry. The second reason we can make a reasonable bridge to 
speaking on the gospel ministry is Jesus is giving new covenant law, but here he's referencing a commonly known Deuteronomy 15 law. Deuteronomy 15, 11, For the needy will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I am commanding you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your afflicted, and the needy in your land. This was Israel's welfare system, so to speak. The people were to take care of one another. Other places in the law gave very specific ways to do this. And, and I say this is a commonly known law because you know this, that Jesus is not teaching you ought to give to the poor. He simply says, when you do it, when you give to the poor, it's an assumption. What he's actually addressing is the heart behind giving. And then the third reason we can make a reasonable bridge from giving to the poor to giving to the gospel ministry is this text is on the heart and it's, it's combined with other clear New Testament texts. In fact, a couple that we'll look at on giving to support the work of the ministry. And this makes this very easily apply to the much bigger issue. The support of the gospel ministry, which includes the church being a funnel for helping church members in need. But I have to be very clear about this. The church is not a social nonprofit organization whose aim is to solve the problems of the world, such as poverty. That's not the aim of the church. We give to those in need among us. In fact, I could make the case that to give indiscriminately to any who has a need is a misuse of God's funds. The solution to physical poverty is spiritual. It's not physical. Any of you have ever tried to give to someone who is in desperate need, more often than not, you will find that to be a bottomless pit because their problem is not a physical one, it's a spiritual problem. So I want to be very clear that Jesus is addressing the heart attitude of giving, which easily transfers to the bigger, more important area of giving, and that is giving to the gospel ministry. I've never apologized for preaching on giving any more than any other area of sanctification Because if you're in disobedience in any area of your Christian life, that area causes a lack of joy. So we want a a joyful church. We want joy, and that comes from obedience. And since this is a heart test, I want to simply give you a comparison with a couple of how-tos. First, we'll look at how to give like a false believer. And the second one, how to give like a true believer. We'll keep it pretty simple. We'll begin here in Matthew and we'll end up in another text. So first of all, how to give like a false believer. I'll give you three ways. The first way to give like a false believer. Seek a reward now. Seek a reward now. Now you notice in verse 1 that Jesus immediately exposes the heart. Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. These are people who are, I like this phrase, doing their righteousness because righteousness is something you demonstrate. And what's their reason? To be noticed, to be seen by men. And if that's the hard attitude, Jesus says, you've received your full reward now. Oh, that felt kind of good. That's great. Hope you enjoyed it because that's it. You have two choices of reward, eternal or temporary. There's no third option. Eternal reward has consequences forever, while temporary reward is a prideful, warm feeling that soon evaporates. It's synonymous with a need to receive the recognition of people, and there's nothing more to come. And what a picture Jesus gives. He paints this picture 
Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. Can you imagine that in church? The offering bag is going by and one of you stands up <clears throat> and you drop your, drop your check in there. Just making sure everybody saw. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It's not ridiculous. Trumpets come in all different shapes and sizes. A church member hinting or flat out saying that because of how much he gives, he should have some decision-making power. That's a trumpet. A church member threatening to withhold giving because of disagreement on some preference issue. That's a trumpet. A church member threatening to withhold service in the church, which is a form of giving because of a disagreement. That's a trumpet. All kinds of trumpets. Sounding the trumpet comes in many forms. Now, what does that have to do with testing the heart? Jesus said in verse 2, not to give like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they might be glorified by men. Is Jesus saying, don't be like hypocritical Christians? No, he's saying, don't be like false believers. Jesus uses this term hypocrites 12 times in Matthew's gospel and with one possible very, very long shot exception Every time he's either speaking about or to false believers, religious people who are not regenerate, who are not saved, that God is not pleased with, who have no internal reality of faith. They're frauds, they're fakes. Every time that's a hypocrite in Matthew's gospel, and I can make the case in all the gospels as well. For the true believer to be overly prideful about giving and even to seek the attention of others Jesus warns that this is what unbelievers do. It's an opportunity to test your own heart because if the true deep down motive for giving is to receive laud and honor from others or, or even from the elders, that doesn't speak well to the authenticity of your faith in Christ. There's a second way to give like a false believer. Tolerate the church. Tolerate the church. You see, the, the false believer, the fraud in the church, the tear growing up with the wheat, has a low view of the church. He views himself as the judge of the church, the church as his servant. I've lost track of the number of times I've gotten emails or letters or phone calls or even the first-time guests essentially telling me or telling the church that we need to do something for them or something for their family I'm not talking about a legitimate need. I've lost track of the number of times that somebody comes one time and says, here are some things I think you can improve about your church. Not interested. That's a low view of the church. And you know what that betrays? It betrays a view of the church that is not given to us by the Bible, but given to us by the Internal Revenue Service that views the church as a charitable organization. Because the view of a church as a charitable organization actually fosters an entirely wrong attitude. I sort of appreciate the tax deduction we receive in our country for giving to the church. And I, I, I say I sort of appreciate that because there's a danger to it. I guarantee you that when, not if, when the IRS decides to try to punish churches and take away that tax deduction, we're going to find out who the real believers are, aren't we? And we're going to find out motives for giving aren't we? And so in a way, it'd be easier if they just rip that band-aid off and get rid of it because that idea of viewing the church as a charity causes concerns. I have a couple of concerns. The first concern is 
The church as a charity lumps the church in with every other nonprofit organization as being in the same category. And there are some wonderful non-church charities, which from an image of God standpoint, mankind made in the image of God, they do admirable work, children's hospitals, homeless shelters, and so forth. Now, what those charities don't know is that what they're fighting is the effects of sin in the world. They're fighting the effect of sin. They're fighting the the outgrowth of sin. They might not understand that. They might not even agree with that. But the church is the the only institution that has the solution to sin. The only church, that the only organization that can take somebody out of this life with the solution through Christ. The solution to sin in the life of every individual. The second concern by viewing the church lowly as a charity It fosters the sense that the church should be beholden to the individuals in the church as some sort of exchange for the gifts given to the church. In my ministry, I've had misbehaving and sinning church members who desire to exert undue influence for some personal preference openly say, do you know how much I give? Just so you know, usually I don't. I, I hate all things numbers, and so unless the, it's the book of numbers in the Bible, but I let uh, other elders deal with that. But I've always had a personal standing policy, and I've enforced this policy a number of times, that when somebody says, I disagree with something you're doing, and I'm thinking about withholding my giving, I've always had the same policy, that from now on until you repent of that attitude, we will not receive one penny from you. You can write a check for $10,000, we will tear it up. Because why would we take that from you? You're sinning by giving it with that attitude. We're sinning by receiving it. So let's just make everybody happy and we won't take it. It fosters a a sense that since I give, you owe me something. Actually, I'm going to show you in Scripture, you owe the church something. That's why you give. It goes the other way around. I'm so thankful for all of you that have partnered to provide for me and my family. I don't ever eat a single meal. We don't write a single check for a bill without being cognizant that it's because of you. We're aware of that. But this is not a charity. This is not giving something with nothing in return. There's a third way to give like a false believer. Not only tolerate the church, but tolerate the shepherds. Tolerate the shepherds. Anytime Hollywood puts out a movie or a TV show or any kind... And I see that there's going to be a pastor in the scene. I just groan inwardly because across the board, they're always idiots. They're always kind of mumbling their way through life and walking into walls and not really aware of life. And well, I tried being a stockbroker, failed at that, got fired from three jobs. So I thought I'd be a pastor. That's kind of what what they're portrayed as. I never cease to be amazed, though, at how professing believers in, in Christ, the moment they don't like something or don't understand something, the qualified shepherds of the church are doing. I never cease to be amazed how quickly anger and gossip and slander and even vengeful behavior pops up. You know what that betrays? That betrays of have a, a lack of having cultivated a biblical attitude toward the shepherds of Christ's church. You know what Ephesians 4 calls the shepherds of Christ's church? The very gift of Christ sent down from heaven. You cannot somehow make the church, a faceless institution without including the shepherds of the church. And I say this to your benefit, not mine. The shepherds of the church have devoted their lives, given up careers, other pursuits to feed the souls of the flock of God. Let let me put it to you this way. It's something we can all relate to. 
every Saturday morning, a chef opens his restaurant for a special breakfast and, and he's there and he's, he's just cooking up a storm and he's making incredible food. Groups come into the restaurant and, and, they, and they love this time and every single week, one particular man comes in. He, he loves the food. He looks forward to it every Saturday. He loads his plate up. But each and every Saturday, instead of stopping at the cash register to pay for his breakfast, he stops by tables asking for money from other people to pay for his breakfast. He eats for free every single week. And yet, because he thinks that the restaurant as an organization supports the chef, he's not really doing anything wrong. None of you would ever do that. What about the person receiving the word of God every week without any effort toward a return on that joy? This might show the state of your heart. It might show that the preached word of God which changes your life and feeds your hungry soul is actually of little value to you. It might show that the church is a charitable organization that you may or may not condescend to support like the Girl Scouts. Every Walmart on planet Earth has a Girl Scout table in front of it with the the little cookies there, right? You would never walk by, grab a box of cookies and run. But if you show up to church week after week and you don't give, that's what you're doing. It's theft. It might show that the shepherds who feed you are of little value. The church is not an inanimate organization with magic money to pay their shepherds. You are the church. I'll never forget this as long as I live. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to preach for quite a number of Sundays in a row in a small church that didn't have a pastor at the time. It was almost shocking how generous they were. Because they were a small little church, they saw a direct connection between their generosity and my family needs. They saw that connection. And even months after that, on two occasions, the elders sent me another check. It was almost embarrassing. It was like, what, why are you doing this? And they said, because they continued to be grateful for those few weeks of being fed the word of God. What a, what a heart that church had. By the way, I've kept up with those elders. I've kept up with that church. They're thriving. They're growing because they love the word of God. They love their shepherds. And they are an outstanding ministry now. So how do you give like a false believer? How do you look like a non-Christian? Seek a reward now, tolerate the church, and tolerate the shepherds. But more importantly, how do you give like a true believer? How do you give like a true believer? Well, first of all, seek a reward later. Seek a reward later. Nothing wrong with seeking reward just at the right time. Verse 3 begins with this conjunction, but when you give to the poor, it's a contrast to the hypocrites, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The the word picture of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, this is an example of of hyperbole, it's a humorous exaggeration to make a point. This is a word picture for humility, for not intentionally drawing attention to yourself. It's very doubtful that this is somehow a legalistic rule against anyone knowing whatsoever. That's not practical, nor is it somehow overly spiritual. Parents ought to set an example for children. Parents ought to be telling their kids, here's what we give. The apostles knew who was giving what in Acts 4 and 5. In our church, we have people who have to count the money. And so... 
We understand that. What this is, is a prohibition against gloating, a prohibition against being puffed up, against having a high view of yourself. Verse 4 gives the motive for giving for the true believer. The motive is heavenly, that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There is the possibility that no one notices, that no one will say thank you, that all reward awaits the presence of God. You know, we do have some church members who don't want anybody to know and they couldn't care less about the tax deduction and so they give with all cash. That's their choice and that's fine. That's one way to do it. But all obedience is its own reward, isn't it? Here's the irony that if you give looking for a reward later, you do get a reward now. You get the reward of joy, the same reward you get in obeying the Lord in every other area. Self-denial brings joy to the Christian. That's the key to joy is self-denial. So look for a reward later. Let me give you a second way to give like a true believer. Have a high view of the church. Have a high view of the church. You know, the old saying is, I don't want to go to your church because of all the hypocrites there and And we always say, well, you can come on in. There's room for one more. There's always room for more. Yes, we are filled with sinners. But what does the Bible say about the church? The New Testament treats the church with high honors. The New Testament treats the church with dignity. We are the bride of Christ. We are the very body of Christ. Christ so values his church that he evaluates and assesses every local congregation as seen in Revelation 2 and 3. He so values his church that in Matthew 18 is commanded that the church be purified when the unrepentant are poisoning the body with arrogant lack of sorrow over sin and recalcitrant stubbornness instead of lowliness and humility and godliness. In fact, the church is so valued by Christ that we are given the mission of being the very caretakers of the truth of the Bible. That's a high honor. Paul calls the church in 1 Timothy 3.15 the pillar and the support of what? The truth. He calls us the household of God. He calls us the church of the living God. How dare anyone have a low view of the church because God has a high view of the church. And why not? It cost him his son to bring the church into existence. The church is the single means by which Christ is gaining kingdom citizens. The church is not a charity. The church is not a servant. The church is not a business with customers. The church is not a place to be entertained. The church expressed by every local church is the pillar and the support of the truth. We are the caretakers of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the gathering of the redeemed of God. There is no higher organization, no higher institution, no higher ideal on this earth. We are the people who will literally rule the world someday. And if you have that high of a view of the church, it leads naturally, very naturally, to the third way to give like a true believer. Have a high view of the shepherds. Have a high view of the shepherds. And I don't say this for my benefit. I say it for yours. I've never been embarrassed about this because it's for your benefit. A low view of the shepherds of Christ's church is a barometer of just how important obedience is to you. Ask any pastor. Many have been mistreated by some outside the church. All have been mistreated by some inside the church. 
And this never happens by happy, spiritually healthy, joy-filled people in the church. Why is that? Because you can't be disobedient in this area and simultaneously be walking in genuine peace and joy in the Lord. In fact, Paul gives a lengthy exposition of the rights that the shepherds of the church have, how they're to be thought of based in their faithfulness to lead God's people. And I want to finish our time today in 1 Corinthians 9. So I'd have you turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul has been accused by some in the church of Corinth of being less than capable and perhaps not being worthy of their affection and certainly not worthy of their financial support. That because of their pride, they they didn't want to be a help to him. They didn't want to help him. They didn't want to assist him. And so he gives a a lengthy exposition of this issue. 1 Corinthians 9, we'll begin in verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have authority to eat and drink? In other words, don't the shepherds of the church get hungry and thirsty? Do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that is Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have authority to refrain from working? Just a little side note here. Paul wasn't receiving anything from Corinth, and that was by his choice. He is going to explain why he has a right to receive, but he refused so that his motives in ministering to them would be without question. Verse 15 explains this. But that didn't mean he didn't have the right. And now he goes to great lengths to prove that right, and he gives six illustrations or six proofs in a row that the minister of the gospel is to be well taken care of in order to feed the flock of God. Now, I'll give you these six illustrations. We can go through them fairly quickly. The first one we'll just call logical practices. Logical practices. Verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Or who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock? And this is very logical. The soldier, the farmer, the shepherd are all supported by their own work. You've never seen any recruitment poster say, come volunteer for the U.S. Army. No, you get paid for that. The farmer gets paid. The shepherd gets paid. The second illustration, the Old Testament. The Old Testament, am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen? In other words, you support your animals, but you won't support your pastors. He gives a third illustration, a third proof. We'll call this reasonable reward. Reasonable reward. Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? This is the basic principle of living in a community together, that beneficial service should be rewarded. That, that, that's the way we run a whole society. He gives a fourth illustration. We'll call this the usual practice. The usual practice. Verse 12, if others share this authority over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this authority, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. It's very likely that Peter ministered in Corinth for a time. Almost certainly that Apollos did. 
Paul simply pointing out that the Corinthians had been generous with others. Why would he be the exception? And notice, by the way, he characterizes this as an authority, literally a power or a rightful claim. Being supported by the church was not, in Paul's estimation, an act of charity, but something which was due to him, due to all who were giving their lives, expending their lives for the gospel. He gives a fifth illustration we'll call the priesthood. The priesthood in verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? He reminds them that the priests were amply supplied by the offerings of the worshipers, that there was a generosity there. And he gives a sixth proof. I think he saves the most important one for last, the command of Christ. The command of Christ, verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This was the command of Jesus when he sent out his apostles to minister to the various towns and villages around uh, Israel. Luke 10, verse 7, he commanded them, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And he goes on to say that if, if they want you to preach for free, shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. I'd like to return, though, to the second proof that Paul gave. I've I've talked about this before, but I think it's worth returning to. That even the ox, when it treads the grain, gets to eat from it. This really digs down into the heart of the follower of Christ. And Paul uses the same illustration in 1 Timothy 5, 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. 5, 17 and 18, rather. The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. And then he quotes Christ, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So first of all, Paul says that elders lead or rule the church. This isn't a dictatorial rule. Peter in 1 Peter 5 cautions against a domineering role over those in your charge. But it is a rule, nevertheless, in that elders have the spiritual authority to call for, and even, according to Titus 2.15, insist on obedience to the word of God. And, Paul says, elders are worthy of double honor, literally twofold honor. The Greek word teme, for honor here, has a rich depth of meaning. First, it means what you think it means, an attitude of respect and deference and obedience. But secondly, the words often used to simply mean money, financial remuneration. Teme is used that way multiple times in the New Testament. And so we get a broad view here that elders are, are worthy of double honor, Elders are worthy of double honor if they're doing an outstanding job. That doesn't mean that all of them need or should receive financial remuneration. And and 1 Timothy 5 is just vague enough that a lot of different applications are possible. But then we get more specific elders who labor at preaching and teaching. In other words, have devoted their lives to the gospel ministry. They're especially worthy of double honor, especially above all, most of all, to an unusual degree. Now, I'll pause there just for a moment. The Apostle Paul places a premium on hard work, on the labor, the intentional labor for the church of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, in speaking of how the church is to treat their shepherds, Paul uses two different Greek words to describe the shepherds as those who labor and those who work. This is why this is not a board of directors. 
Elders are those who work, who do labor. And so the distinction in 1 Timothy 5.17 is not shepherds who don't work hard and shepherds who do work hard. That's not the distinction. All shepherds are to work hard. The distinction is that some literally devote their lives to the gospel ministry while others earn their income from outside sources. But all are to be hardworking. Now, why this illustration about the ox? Is Paul just taking the verse out of context to make a point? Of course, my question is, why is he comparing the pastor to an ox? Should I be offended by that? He sort of answers the question back in 1 Corinthians 9, is God merely concerned about oxen? We have to understand what he's talking about, and he's writing to people who would understand or would know people who would understand. In the ancient Near East, an ox was often used as part of the harvest process, in this case, the treading of the grain. An ox or a pair of oxen could be used to drag a heavy threshing board behind them, and and this started the process of separating the good grain from the husks of the grain. And in fact, in the context of Deuteronomy 25.4, where this is taken from, This isn't just a verse about being kind to your animals. It's not about being kind to your animals. Martin Luther famously said that this verse can't really be for the ox because ox can't read. That's just what he didn't want to deal with it. So apparently he just left it at that. But the context of Deuteronomy 25, the larger scope is how citizens of Israel were to treat one another, especially in a justice situation, for example. If this law was only for the owners of the ox, it wouldn't make sense. By virtue of ownership, there's already a built-in motivation to take care of your own property. All owners of oxen fed them. That wasn't an issue. And so if someone is using an ox to thresh his grain harvest and he's muzzled the ox so that the ox can't bend down and eat something, that's not the owner. That's someone else. Not every farmer was necessarily going to own an ox. It's like owning an SUV. It's a big deal to have something. So it would be very common to borrow or to even rent an ox from a neighbor to do the threshing. And the renter or the borrower of the ox, well, if he didn't want to lose any grain to the ox, he would muzzle the ox. After all, it's not his ox. As far as he's concerned, the ox can eat later. So it's not just a commentary on how to treat the ox. It's a commentary on how to treat your neighbor. But more to Paul's use of Deuteronomy 25.4, it's also a commentary on value. An ox was of much more value than just a few mouthfuls of grain. And so the person who refused to let the ox eat from the produce is devaluing the ox, which is not easily replaced, and instead being stingy about the equivalent of a loaf of bread. And so it was a matter of justice and a matter of value. It was unjust to the owner of the ox to be stingy in feeding the ox, and it was a matter of value that the ox is of much more value than the grain. This is the same principle if you loan your car to someone with a full tank and it's clean and they return it to you dirty and on empty. You kind of feel like, hey, what's going on here? There's a matter of justice and value. So what was Paul's point in regard to the financial support of vocational shepherds? Well, this is what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if God is concerned about the justice and the value of the ox helping with the harvest, how much more is God concerned about the shepherds of the church and how they're treated? For the vocational shepherds, the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching to provide for them as a matter of justice, 
and value. And I have to say, I feel so blessed that I can be completely open about this because all of our elders understand this very, very well. But I'm amazed how many churches in their leadership view paying the teaching pastors and paying the the men doing the hard work of the ministry as some sort of charity. It's not charity. There is justice. There is value. Now, I don't really have to tell you this in this sense because you know it already. The life-changing impact of the preached Word of God makes you naturally yearn to thank God in a tangible way, doesn't it? Don't you just long to thank the Lord as He changes your life through the Word of God? Let me address both of those, the justice and the value, because it really cuts to the heart of a church's overall attitude toward their leadership. And this is important because many of you in years to come may be influential in giving this understanding to others. Many of you hearing this message via live stream, even you might have influence right now in your own church. And so first, let me address the matter of justice. You are receiving the life-giving preaching of the Word of God. There is no other source of spiritual life except His Word. To not give toward the support of this endeavor is unjust. It's like the man who rents an ox and starves it simply because he can. In the strictest sense, the vocational shepherd doesn't have a job. I know the Internal Revenue Service thinks I have a job. I don't have a job. This is not an exchange of services for a paycheck. It's a calling to which a man devotes his life to serving the Lord and the church provides well for him as he does so. I, I think a better word is it's a, it's a sponsorship. It's a sponsorship for a man to do the work of the ministry both inside the walls of the church and outside in serving the church universal. It's a patronage of sorts. That's the matter of justice. What about the matter of value? For one reason or another, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of church leadership teams on this particular issue, and I'm stunned at how often I hear leaders trying to get the most bang for their buck with, a, with their pastoral staff, arguing over a few thousand dollars here and there. Here's the line I hear the most. Lay leaders saying of their pastor, well, he just needs to have faith. No, the leadership needs to have faith to obey 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Here's where the value comes in. It takes years and years and years to develop just one preaching pastor who can handle the word of God with skill and with precision. So when the church gets its hands on one or two of them to try to do it as cheaply as possible makes no sense whatsoever. If you're going to have brain surgery, are you shopping for price? You go, you know, this guy's a thousand bucks less than this one. I think we'll go with him. No, that doesn't have anything to do with it. To value a few thousand dollars over and above the life-changing, cool, refreshing water of the Word of God, which glorifies Christ and sends the soul heavenward. Who would do that? For Grace Bible Church, that's our general fund. The general fund is that which remunerates the shepherds. And so you might be one who says it's more fun to give to joyful generosity because I can watch a building go up and that is fun and that's enjoyable. It's more fun to give to a benevolence fund because I, I can see somebody who's being helped, but I'm really not worried about the general fund. May I tell you the general fund ought to be the first priority because that's what funds the preaching of the word. In fact, your giving is first and foremost for the dissemination of the word of God. That's the first priority. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. 
The greatest investment we as believers make in the church is to invest in her men, her trained shepherds. And then, what incredible joy the church experiences together. We've experienced that joy here. Grace Bible Church has been taken by the Lord from a place where I was serving part-time while working another job and, and commuting to Bakersfield from another city to now being fully supported, to now having multiple shepherds and support staff Supported by your orthodox view of the church. Just a couple of years ago, I mentioned that we are praying for Alex Barrientos to be able to devote his life to the ministry. He's here now, thanks to you. I've mentioned before, I'm praying for a pastor over discipleship and for more pastoral care over kids of all ages, trained shepherds serving every age group in the church. I've never experienced anything like this personally I think the Lord has been very, very faithful to reward your faith and your generosity. And and just to be clear, a church, as a church, is expected to exercise faith. This is how a church body uses faith, by giving generously and using resources generously, not by hoarding them. And I know there are some successful charities that have managed to build up a self-sustaining work with funds that are now uh, supporting the charity off their investment income. There is no precedent for this in the church. There is no precedent for hoarding funds where to use them. I never want to be part of a church that has $10 million in the bank when Christ returns unless we were about to do something with it. There's never a precedent for that. Instead, we pray for the Lord to multiply our effectiveness to provide all the more, including for our facility for future ministry. I've dealt with this with numbers of churches. Churches with six, seven, and in one case, eight figures in the bank and yet not providing for the staffing needs that the church needs, not providing for ministries. What's happened? Well, that money is there to support the church. No, it's there to support your idol of the church. So we don't hoard. We operate by faith. And yes, we save for a project here and there, but every penny in our church is designated to be spent. Every one of them. I have to say this. If Grace Bible Church were included in the letters to the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, I think the Lord Jesus Christ would say something like this. I know your generosity that you have valued the word of God. But that only continues if you give like true believers, seeking a reward later, having a high view of the church and a high view of her shepherds. And I want to return our hearts back to, and you don't have to turn there, but back to Matthew 6, because the the key issue is the measure of your heart. Unbelievers give. Unbelievers do wonderful things for the church, but if you dig down to their hearts, It's for two different motives. It's so people can see and if they have a a very twisted theology, it's so that they're, they're kind of hoping that the Lord will see that and kind of offset some of their sin. That's a false hope. Matthew 6 measures your heart. It measures your appreciation and understanding of the value of God's word. It measures your understanding of the value of the shepherds who bring you God's word and of the precious people who have needs in our church. That we're to help. And it also measures just how kingdom oriented you truly are. 
For the believer who's feeding on the word of God and makes the obedient choice to love his church, to love his shepherds, who can track the progress of his own sanctification wrought by the pouring in of the, of the Bible, there is for you an urgency, there is a yearning, there is a longing to make some sort of return. And it's often with a sacrificial and abundant return as well. I'm burdened that our church be made up of genuine, authentic believers in Christ. And this is just the the, the final test in this little series. My prayer has been that this message and the previous messages will move us in that direction. And if I could return to one topic on the bigger topic of authentic Christianity, don't trust false tests. Don't trust them. Don't trust a previous profession. Don't trust your own heart saying, well, I think I'm a Christian. Are you willing to bet eternity on that, I think? Don't trust your baptism. Don't trust saying, I'm a Christian. Don't trust other people saying, oh, you're a Christian. No human being can give you assurance of faith. Only you can through prayer and through understanding spiritual fruit. Don't trust false tests. My prayer for each of you is that your faith might be genuine. That you are truly in Christ. And that the, res- the gospel resounds in your heart and in your life such that you have an overwhelming desire to serve the Lord in every way you possibly can until He returns for us. Oh, I don't want a single one of you to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. But statistically, some of you might. I'd like to be the exception. I'd like to be the church that stands before Christ. And Christ says, all of you are here. Praise God. That's my hope. That's my prayer. Let's pray and move our hearts and minds to the Lord's table. Our Father, we come to you now so very thankful for the ability to hear the word of God. You've given us minds. You've given us hearts. And the Holy Spirit helps us and illumines the text of Scripture to our hearts and our souls. Lord, we come now to remember the reason we are able to worship you, and that is because of the cross of Christ. We come now to think with somber hearts on what it cost your son Jesus to save us. We think with sobriety on the death the pain, the anguish, the humiliation that our Lord suffered. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us that attitude of remembrance, of softness, of humility, and joy in remembering the Lord's table. Amen.